Welcome everybody. Once again, welcome to Spark Church. I'm Mark. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm so glad to be with you to share some ideas about the Word of God. Now, I haven't physically preached in front of anyone in over 18 months. So some of you may not know me, so allow me to reintroduce myself. My name is Mark. A to the RK. I used to move chairs back in the old days. What you see is not what you get. Change your expectations of God or you'll live with regret. Uh. Press out a firing pan into the fire. I'll be the religious disagreements number one supplier. What? <laughs> nervous energy, nervous energy. So for those of you who are, are not fans of 2000s hip-hop, I apologize for everyone else. I also apologize for desecrating Jay-Z's public source of announcement with my horrific my rhymes. Last week I sang, this week I'm rhyming. Clearly this is not my regular gig, but thank you, Kendra. <laughs> Again, I'm Mark, and I am the children's pastor here at Spark. Now, I am not a fan of being called the children's pastor at Spark at all because it's a misnomer. We don't have one children's pastor at Spark. We have six. Danielle, Kevin, Marcus, Omer, Tom, myself. We're all pastors to all the children and all the adults here at Spark. Also, in many church communities, the term children's pastor, as well as youth pastor, family pastor, women's pastor, singles pastor, those all tend to have a negative connotation. As in, you cater to that specific group, but you can't serve me, so you're not really a pastor. And that's far from the truth. At least four of the pastors here have served at some point with children and adults. And in that role, they served everyone. I watched Pastor Marcus witness and lead adults, children, parents, everybody across the board. And he was called a youth pastor, but he did so much more than that. So I'm not a fan of being called a children's pastor. But, but, at Ed's last Sunday... One of the kids called me over uh, before the service to tell me about a great accomplishment that he had received. He had made his soccer team, and he might get to travel around and play in different countries. And then, after the child dedications that happened yesterday, I went over to play security guard in the lobby, and four of the kids came over to hang out with me. And we ended up pa uh, discussing Pastor Tom's sermon, actually, as only we can, by watching videos of Jesus and the Richland ruler and asking questions. And honestly, that is the closest I felt to normal since March of 2020. So I am humbled and honored that so many of you would trust me to teach and to mentor the younger people of this church. And I begrudgingly accept the title of children's pastor, even though I'm good with just being called pastor. Now, this week, we'll be continuing our journey through the book of Luke, focusing on one story in chapter 18 of the gospel. We're calling it C saw seen because vision perspective and understanding are such a huge part of our story today so let's talk about jewels precious stones now until recently until recent decades jewels were wholly natural and finding them was a massively expensive massively labor-intensive process but a jewel's value is not solely in the size of the jewel or the amount of effort required to get it it's in its beauty to fully appreciate a jewel, it has to reflect light. And to reflect light, jewels are cut into shapes that with flat facets that catch that light. It's its luminescence that becomes important. And historically, people have used the metaphor of a jewel to describe the Bible. It is a precious gem 
that reflects God in its reading and its facets mean that there is more than one way to perceive God in every message. Pastor Danielle actually uses this metaphor fairly regularly. And for support, added support, we hear David sing in Psalm 62, one thing God has spoken, two things I have heard. Noting this multifaceted aspect of the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible. In the Talmud, a centuries-old Jewish commentary in the Bible, we have this teaching. One biblical verse may convey several teachings. And like a hammer that breaks the rock into pieces, that is, just as the rock is split into many splinters, so also may one biblical verse convey many teachings. And finally, Rabbi Avraham Ibn Ezra in the 1100s was one of the many to use the phrase, Shivim Panim la Torah. The Torah has 70 different faces. And looking at the New Testament, our passage today, from Luke chapter 18, verses 35 to 43, offers this rich opportunity for interpretation, of which we'll look at four different facets. And I know that sounds like a lot, but stay with me. Now, let me just offer one caveat before we get going. What we'll try to do here is called exegesis, or leading out. We'll try to, try to draw out meaning from this passage, relying on our own study, study and understanding, and the study and understanding of those in community with us, including our predecessors from decades and centuries past, and our contemporaries within the church, all of which we hope is spirit-inspired. Where we can go astray is when we do what is called eisegesis, or leading in. Sometimes we unintentionally insert our own meaning and interpret scriptural passages to mean whatever, what God never intended for it to convey. And we see those flawed interpretations throughout the Bible with kings and prophets allowing their understanding of God's purpose to be steered by their preferences. Some of worst, humanity's worst actions, slavery, racial supremacy, and all types of physical, mental, spiritual, and social abuse have been justified by Christians because of eisegesis. So when reading through the Bible, we really need to be careful. And now that I've potentially undermined my sermon and all of its conclusions, let's look at Luke chapter 18, verses 35 to 43. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd go by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And when Jesus stopped, and he commanded him to be brought to him, and when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Word of the Lord. Now, let's think of this passage as a jewel, a precious gem with multiple facets, reflecting the mission of Jesus and his people. And let's consider one of these facets. The most obvious one is, this is a story about the redemption of creation. Jesus performed a miracle, healing a man who was blinded, and restoring his sight. It is a clear example of Jesus' primary mission on earth to bring about the kingdom of heaven on earth. In an earlier passage from Luke, Jesus read from the book of Isaiah, saying to the people gathered, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This one miraculous healing is a physical proclamation of the good news. Jesus heals this blind man and removes not only his physical impairments, but his social impairments. The people's understanding at that time had been that physical illness was a punishment from God. And so those with illnesses were shunned by the rest of society as deserving of their illnesses. With his restored sight comes his restored honor within the community. That's one facet. Now, what if we turn that gem just a little bit? What other reflections of God can we see? Let's consider this facet. The story is yet another story in Luke about seeking and finding the lost. With Sidi and Tom a few weeks ago, we talked about many parables of lost things, from the parable of the lost sheep, to the parable of the lost coin, to the parable of the lost sons. With the blind man, we have a living parable, yet another story of a person lost, but this time within his community, a person marginalized, set aside, and found by Jesus. Now, what story immediately follows this story of the blind man in the book of Luke? The story of Zacchaeus, another person lost within his community. Zacchaeus had wealth, but because of his position as a Roman collaborator, and possibly because of his short height, he was rejected by the people of Jericho. So Zacchaeus ran ahead of the crowd and climbed the tree in order to see Jesus. I was actually going to get a kid to do this, but I thought it was a little dangerous. And there in the tree, he was spotted by Jesus, found by Jesus, who asked to visit with him. Zacchaeus' story, in conjunction with the story of the blind man, offers a very interesting pattern. Choo, 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 choo. The pattern is, Jesus is seeking out the lost, but the lost are also looking to be found. Zacchaeus isn't sitting at home. He's out and about searching to be part of what's going on, wanting to belong and to be included. The blind man also isn't sitting there quietly off to the side. He's on the road. He knows he needs help. And he cries out to Jesus, son of David, for mercy in order to see. And Jesus finds him. And in restoring his sight, Jesus makes it possible for this blind man to rejoin the community. So with this turn of the gem, what facet of understanding can we gain from this passage? We know that Jesus is seeking out the lost but it's not a unilateral search. The lost are also seeking something to be part of, something or someone greater than themselves. So as we encounter people who are lost, we must recognize that they aren't just sheep sitting at the bottom of a pit waiting to be rescued or a coin sitting under a rug waiting to be uncovered. No, they're, like, they're people like the prodigal son, like Zacchaeus, and like the blind man, searching for meaning and belonging in their lives. So people might go down the wrong paths in the search for meaning and worth, looking for love in all the wrong places. But as they, and as we, go down these wrong paths, we find that God is searching for us and finding us in places, in spaces, and among people we would never expect. So now let's take this gem of a passage again and give it another quarter turn to find another related facet. Usually when we read this passage of the blind man, we focus on the two protagonists. One, the blind man. Number two, Jesus. However, there is an antagonist in the story, the crowd, the hoi polloi. The crowd starts by helping the blind man, informing him that Jesus is passing by. 
Then when the blind man calls out to Jesus, the crowd tells him to shut up. The crowd goes from providing information about Jesus to controlling access to Jesus. Suddenly, the crowd has tasked itself with judging who is important enough for Jesus to interact with. One of my favorite songs, Fred Hammond's Pass Me By, is based on this specific passage. And the lyrics flesh out what the crowd might have said to the blind man. Don't bother Jesus. You have nothing to offer. Stay in your place. Now, this isn't the only story in Luke where a crowd becomes an impediment. Again, what story immediately follows the story of the blind man? Zacchaeus. A crowd, maybe even the exact same crowd of people that blocked the blind man from Jesus a few verses earlier, that same crowd might be preventing Zacchaeus from reaching Jesus because Zacchaeus, the tax collector and the Roman collaborator, is so disliked by his community. And what does the crowd do? They become annoyed with Jesus because for the second story in a row, Jesus is wasting his valuable time with yet another worthless person. Now, looking at this facet of the blind man story alongside Zacchaeus, what can we take away? Well, again, we often look at stories like this and identify ourselves with the marginalized person as the blind man in Zacchaeus, wanting access to Jesus and being prevented from doing so by these evil external forces that are reaching out to stop us. But are we actually the crowd? Are we appointing ourselves as God's publicists, calling God's attention to what and who is important, steering away the riffraff, and controlling who has access? As we standing, are we standing between Jesus and the truly marginalized because we think we know what is important to Jesus? And it can't be this. Jesus, God has much bigger fish to fry than this, and so do we. I mean, we have climate change, we have COVID, the issues of individuals who are grieving or homeless or migrants or transgender or the working poor, so on. They're minuscule in comparison. We can't spend our valuable time with them, so why would God? Or in Zacchaeus' case, have we, the crowd, decided that the rich and powerful of our time, because they have not wielded the wealth and influence in ways we expect, do they not deserve access to Jesus? Now, we might not agree that everyone on the screen has been poor stewards of their wealth and power, but we can agree that these people have been singled out in some way for not doing the right thing or doing enough. And because of that, some might say, hey, the ground is level before the cross, but you have disqualified yourself by your actions. You don't deserve a second chance with God. The Apostle Paul calls us Christ's ambassadors, serving in his hands and feet and holding people accountable for when they fail to meet God's standards. But are we the crowd acting more like security guards, marching to our own expectations, acting like we deserve to connect with Jesus, and then using our disapproval to keep others from reconciling with him? Now, I could end the sermon right there, that's three facets. That's three different ways to see this one story. But if you can hang on for just one, a few more minutes, then I will give this gem of passage one final turn. What other reflections of God can we see? The story of the blind man might just be about how we approach God. And to better, get a better angle on the gem, I'm going to cheat. And I'm going to jump over to Mark's version of this event because of the passage that precedes that story. We're not switching gems. We're just turning the same gem and looking at a different facet from a different angle. And to tell it well, I'm going to need some help. 
And so uh, I'm going to be moving around a little bit. So if you're on Zoom, you might not be able to hear me, but everybody here will hear me. Uh, first of all, I'm going to need two people to play the apostles, James and John, son of Zebedee. You look like a son of Zebedee. And you look like a son of Zebedee. Can you come on over here, please? Give him a round of applause. And actually, can you stay back there? Stay right where Tom is. Go ahead. Go. Stay. Come on back. And then I'm also going to need uh, someone to play Jesus. Who is Jesus like in this place? I didn't call you. <laughs> no, kidding. Come on, Daniel. Come on up. <laughs> okay. And everyone else, I need you guys to play the crowd. Now, you don't have to say a word. Just look annoyed. Kind of like, yeah, just like that. He's looking at me. Okay. So here we go. And as we read and listen, start looking for the patterns. Okay, here we go. And James and John, the son of Zebedee, the sons of Zebedee, came to him and said to him, and he said to them, Jesus said to them, and James and John sent to him, <laughs> okay, ad-libbing already, okay. and Jesus said to them, And when the ten disciples heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called him, them to him and said to them, Could you please give Jesus and James and John and the crowd yourselves a big round of applause? That is scripture reading at its finest. But we're not done yet. Now let's look at the very next story in the book of Mark. And you'll see how similar they are. Now I'm going to need someone to play the blind man. That man right there. Ish. All set. Okay. And I'm going to need someone to play Jesus. Again? Okay. Come on up. And everyone else, I need you to play the crowd. And again, I don't, I don't need you to move around at all, but I need you to read the text that's on the screen out loud. And I know it's kind of hard to, to see, but let's practice a little bit. Let's practice speaking loudly. Say this after me. Hey, be quiet. Hey, be quiet. He doesn't want to hear from you. That was beautiful. All right, let's do this. Let's do this. And they came to Jericho. And as Jesus was leaving Jericho with his disciples in a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. Hey, 
But he cried out all the more. And Jesus stopped and said, And the crowd called the blind man, saying to him, And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, And the blind man said to him, and Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Another excellent job. Give them another big round. Nicely done. Now, let's take a look at these two stories back to back in Mark and look for patterns. In the first, and actually in both of these stories, we have sons that want access to God. In the first, we have the sons of Zebedee, literally sons of thunder or the sons of the God who gives. In the second, we have Timaeus, the son of Timaeus, bar meaning Timaeus, bar meaning son, Timaeus in Greek, meaning the honorable, the highly prized, the esteemed, which is a weird name to give to Bartimaeus because he is not esteemed by the crowd. In both stories, Jesus asked them a question. What do you want me to do for you? Ti thelete poiso umin, ti soi theles poiso. It's almost the exact same phrase in Greek stated to James, John, and Bartimaeus, only slightly dramatically different because of the number of people being addressed. And in both stories, we find that the surrounding crowd are angry at the request. In the first story, it's the ten disciples. And in the second story, it's a crowd in Jericho. It can't be a mistake that two such similar stories exist back to back in the Bible. It seems clear that Jesus is using his interactions with the blind man to explain what happened with James and John. So one thing we can take away from this immediately is that Jesus welcomes questions. Sure, the crowds had problems with the requesters. They're trying to get over on us or he's wasting Jesus's valuable time. But Jesus made time for these folks, stopping everything and asking, what do you want me to do for you? Jesus also offered clear, even responses for both requests. He could have offered some weird response to the blind man or to James and John, such as this response given to a poor answer. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. At no point in your rambling, incoherent response were you even close to anything that could be considered a rational thought? Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. I award you no points, and may God have mercy on your soul. Yeah, Jesus could have said something like this, something so deprecating, but he didn't. He accepted the questions as legitimate, no matter how crazy they might have seemed. So those are the similarities in our stories. What can we draw from the differences. Well, James and John asked, "Teacher, we want you to do some we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you." Which is a lot of hubris. I mean, no wonder everyone's annoyed when they hear him say this. What student says to their teacher, "Hey, I want you to do what I say." Nobody who wants to stay on their good teacher's good side would ever say something like this. But Jesus says, "Earnestly, honestly, what do you want me to do for you?" They reply, award us the highest places of honor in your glory. One of us at your right hand and one of us, the other at your left. 
Remember, James and John are the sons of Zebedee, Zebadia, the God who gives. So the sons of the God who gives are requesting something of God. They're requesting a place of honor. Now, Jesus doesn't give them what they're asking for. He says, as Pastor Danielle said, you have no idea what you're asking. You will, you will drink the cup that I drink and be baptized in my baptism. But as to awarding places of honor, that's not my business. What did James and John think Jesus coming into his glory would look like? Probably something like this. As the anointed one, as the Messiah, Jesus was ex- expected, who they thought him to be Jesus, Jesus was expected to return to Israel to physically, to return to Israel with physical power and political power and independence. They wanted to rule alongside Jesus. What did Jesus coming into his glory look like? This. When Jesus gave his life away for the sake of the world, that was his moment of glory, his moment of coming into the kingdom. The space to his right and to his left were not for him to give. In a sense, James and John are blind to what Jesus is doing, and they seemingly remain so along with the other ten disciples. Now, what about the actual blind man, Bartimaeus, the son of the esteemed? What did he initially ask? Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Unlike James and John, he takes a verbal posture of humility. I don't expect you to help. I'm not in a position to expect anything of you. But I'm crying out to you. And Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? His reply, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. Or literally, in Greek, Rabbi, that I might see. Not a a statement of power, nor prestige, nor wealth. Not a command, nor demand, nor even a I want you to. Just a humble request to receive what you once had and what others have taken for granted. Rabbi, that I might see. In a sense, a blind Bartimaeus could see more than sighted James and John ever could. In Jesus' answer, go your way, your faith has made you well. Jesus' response is just as humble as Bartimaeus' question. He doesn't say, I, Jesus, have restored you. He says, your faith, your trust in me has restored you. And what does Bartimaeus do with this gift of sight? He doesn't ask for more of Jesus. He doesn't run off. Immediately, he recovered his sight and followed Jesus on the way. The blind man had already perceived, without sight, he had already perceived who Jesus was. And once able to see, he could act on that perception. He followed Jesus. Now, looking at this very last facet of the blind man's story, enhanced with the story of James and John, what can we take away? Jesus does not give us whatever we ask for. He gives us what is in line with God's purpose. And he gives however he sees fit to give. And thank God that he does, because just like James and John, we have no idea what some of the things we ask for will lead to. One of my friends will always tell me about her family and how they aggravate her. And then she will say, I've asked God to give me patience and grace for them. And I will always say, be careful what you ask for. God has a way of not giving you patience and grace supernaturally, but placing you in even more aggravating situations where you will need to develop patience and grace just to get through that. James and John already had a lot. They had a place to belong in Jesus' community. They were even in the inside circle, and they took it for granted. Those things weren't enough. 
But the power and prestige they asked for was something outside of the will of God. They were asking for what they perceived as important, and they were blind to Jesus' purpose on earth. Those of us who count ourselves as followers of Jesus can often act like James and John. We'll read verses like this. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the doors will be opened to you. We'll hear, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And we can take those verses out of context. We can pull them into isolation. And we can oversimplify those statements and perform the eisegesis, that reading into things I was talking to you about earlier. Eisegesis of these passages support the name and claim form of prayer. Lord, in the name of Jesus, I claim that house right there. I claim that spouse right there. I claim that job right there. We can forget that our desires do not equal God's desires, even though they might be good in our eyes. We can forget that God's plan and purpose for our lives is not for us to be happy and not for us to feel good about ourselves. Now, God will never refuse to hear our requests, but as, James did, as Jesus did with James and John, God will reset our expectations sometimes in ways we don't like. Bartimaeus the blind man didn't belong at all. Kept outside at arm's length. All he wanted was the chance to be a part of a community again and the chance to belong again. That inclusion was in accordance with the will of God. Bartimaeus was physically blind, but again, he was perceptive enough to understand what was required of him, to do justly and to love mercy and to literally walk humbly with your God. He didn't say, God, give me what I perceive as important. He said, God, let me simply see what you see, and then we'll go from there. We have to open our eyes to the fact that our time, talent, abilities, resources, they weren't just given to us so that we could, avoid or we could find personal happiness or so that we could avoid personal pain. They were given to us so that we could follow Jesus in assisting him in building the kingdom of God on earth. They were given to us so that we could embody the call to love God and love our neighbor. They were given to us so that, like the once blind man, we would be able to physically walk humbly with our God. So one passage in a synoptic version that cheats in four facets of understanding. And with more time and more reflection, there is so much more meaning that we could find in this passage. Just as the unexamined life isn't worth living, the unexamined faith isn't worth living out. So thank you for taking part in this collective faith journey with us. There's more to be said on this topic, and I've already said way too much for our time. But as we take these precious gems of Scripture and seek to understand God through the reflections, we need to follow the once blind man's example and approach it with humility and a desire to seek God and God's kingdom first. Because our own expectations and desires can creep into where and how we see God in action. And we never consider any of this alone, but led by God's Holy Spirit and alongside the community of believers to which we belong, past and present and future. And by the grace of God, such study can lead to us joyfully learning more about God in our world. As a community of believers, 
we talk about God's kingdom work and we live it out. One way that we live it out is by taking part in a tradition, a sacrament kept by followers of Jesus, past, present, and hopefully future. The table of the Lord is open to whoever would receive Jesus. So whether you be James or John or Zacchaeus or Bartimaeus or a member of the crowd or anyone in between, you are welcome to join us in this unifying act of remembrance. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples saying, take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. All are welcome at this table.